Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with you another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Chris Sermons, who is a farmer and biological farmer and naturalist. In 2004, he started BioWay Farm in upstate South Carolina, where they grow organic produce and foster biodiversity. He's held leadership roles with the Sierra Club, Wild South, and Slow Food. The Carolina Farm Stewardship Association recognized Chris as the Farmer of the Year in 2016. His approach to managing the farm is guided by a land ethic and his background in permaculture. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you for having me, Michael. Glad to be here. All right. So share with us, you've been farming for a, a fair number of years now. Have you always farmed on the same property? Have you moved around? No, always been uh, here on our uh, farm in the uh, Ware Shoals area. Um, yeah. So this is all my sole place that I farmed and uh, don't come from a farming background. And, um, you know, so just kind of started from scratch. Yeah. Well, what, what got you started? In farming, how'd you uh, become a farmer? Well, um, I am from Greenville, South Carolina, so I didn't grow up here in the area. Um, I was a suburban kid, and uh, I always got to uh, spend time in the outdoors, hunting and fishing with my father. And I've always had an interest in the in nature and felt a part of nature. And third grade, I was uh, did a project on soil erosion, so I feel like it's always been in my blood. Um, I joined the Sierra Club when I was uh, 24 years old. So environmentalism has always been a part of my life. Mm. And, um, you know, I feel like uh, environmental groups were kind of ahead of the curve and uh, we're talking up on local food systems and going to food uh, farmers markets and so forth. Uh, so I then uh, started working in a natural food store saw that there was not a lot of um, produce coming from around the uh, Southeast or even the Eastern United States for that matter. And so I kind of saw a uh, opportunity there. And at the time the farm was uh, actually a hunting retreat, uh, ironically. And so we were growing um, food plots for deer, wildlife crops to attract them for, for hunting. And we, had the equipment, the tractor, uh, implements, and so forth, and and just kind of segued into farming for people and instead of uh, deer, and uh, that was in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. So, what were the first years like on the property? We grew asparagus um, and planted asparagus for about four years in a row ultimately getting up to about two acres in asparagus. Uh, My father, uh, who helped me start the farm, wanted to grow asparagus. So that's what we did. And then I grew row crops on the side and sold them at the natural food store that I was working at. 
And uh, asparagus was maybe not the first crop for uh, beginning farmers to get into, but mm -hmm. we did. And uh, it was, it was a, uh, you know, a, a, a process and uh, we got a little bit bigger and a little bit better, I would hope, uh, every year. And um, that was, you know, the first four or five years. And uh, then just really got more into uh, growing on raised beds and, and uh, went from there. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about asparagus, because that's actually something that we're looking to put some in at some point, because I know it's not a super easy crop to grow. What were the lessons you learned along the way of growing that? Well, uh, to get your field and your beds ready and thoroughly prepared. Um, so that means getting rid of uh, things like Bermuda grass, um, making sure your fertility levels are adequate because it's a pretty heavy feeder. Uh, we're farming hilltops, so not really the best for asparagus. It kind of likes a, a wet, kind of mucky, really rich soil. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, we did the best with what we had. Um, once you stop tillage, you know, because it's a perennial. So after the first uh, year or two, we really couldn't till after that. And so uh -huh. I tried everything from sheep mulching to, um, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of things. Um, putting down uh, weed block, um, you know, ground, ground cloth, things yeah. like that. And uh, what I didn't try was something like a uh, chicken tractor. I think running those down the, uh, the aisles could have worked. Um, we would hire people out to weed it uh, in between the rows of asparagus. And as soon as they got started, uh, finished with that, they'd have to start over. So it was just kind of a, a money uh -huh. drain there and wasn't really adequate to uh, solve the problem. So I would eventually just evolve to where I'd mow between the rows of asparagus to keep the weeds from going to seed and uh, just kind of benign neglect after a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so is the asparagus no longer, you know, no longer doing that at all or? Correct. Yeah. We totally okay. got out of it and converted all the fields back into row crops and, you know, do raising on raised beds and um, it's uh you know, something I've thought about getting back into. It's definitely a, a, a great crop. And for a while uh -huh. there, I was known as the asparagus guy and we could sell as much as we could grow. Um, and I love the perennial aspect of it, but these were our primary production fields. So I felt like they had a higher calling and a, and a higher value and, and raising more crops instead of just uh, having a two month season in April and May with the asparagus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was the well, how did you plant it is that you did the, the standard method of digging a trench and put them in the bottom of the trench and slowly filling it up yeah exactly uh, you know doing a trench with the middle buster um we added phosphorus and you know any micronutrients that we needed and then just laid the asparagus in uh we would do this in spring even though you know in the south you could probably plant in the fall the problem is, is there aren't any plants available in the fall because they've all been bought out in the spring for traditional planting season in areas north, midwest, northeast, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, that's that's how we did it. We hired some uh, guys to help us and uh, I think ended up planting about 10,000 crowns of asparagus. That is a lot. Um, so talk to us now about what's the cropping look like on the farm. 
Sure. It's in raised beds. Um, we're growing on about four acres. And uh, it's not um, no tillage by any means. Uh, I do try to reduce tillage as much as possible. Um, we use tarps. And it's pretty intensive. We're growing some uh, fields. We're growing two crops a year. Uh, when they're not in, in crops, we've got them in cover crops. I'm a fervent uh, believer in those. As I mentioned, uh, we were growing uh, food plots for deer. And turns out a lot of those same crops they use to attract deer are the same ones we use to build soil, cover crops, uh -huh. and grains, and legumes. So in that regard, we were ahead of the curve and uh, we're uh, building soil and, and really increasing soil health before we even really got into the commercial aspect of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, what, talk about the permaculture aspect of your farm. Sure, I uh, took the design course uh, down at uh, Koinonia Farm in South Georgia back in 2010 with uh, one of my mentors, Chuck Marsh. He started Earth Haven Eco Village in Black Mountain, North Carolina. And I had been into permaculture, was taking Permaculture Activist Magazine for a number of years, uh, met Peter Bain. He was also living at Earth Haven. He was a longtime editor and publisher. So I'd been reading about it and uh, putting it into practice and was in a, a good spot because the farm I had moved to in 99 and was, you know, beginning to, uh, really observe the land and start the farm and planting things, doing a raised bed garden, planting native plants. And so I didn't really have, you know, a, uh, a tradition here. It was more or less a blank slate. So I felt like it was a good place to uh, really implement permaculture. And I didn't want to advertise it and, and market it with the farm until I had at least taken the design course. So that was in 2010. And I won't say that there's a whole lot of uh, permaculture in the uh, commercial farming and the organic farming that we're doing. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it's pretty straightforward. And, and um, really the permaculture comes in in the design of the farm, the farm core, the farm was laid out on a key line or a contour or a terrace, whatever you want to call it, um, quite by uh, sheer happenstance. And only later did I realize that that was the case, but sometimes you uh, get lucky or you just have a sense of the land and things or innate and just kind of work out like that. And so that was uh, a real good backbone of the farm. and. Other things like uh, we've got a, a food forest that uh, is kind of based on, it's just a, a farm, uh, basically a forest garden in the woods. So mm -hmm. not a whole lot of food there, but I do put in um, fruit trees and I use natives that have uh, edible characteristics or medicinal characteristics. And uh, we've got our farm roads kind of laid out to where they're meeting and like five points and where they're all coming together, kind of like an axis or a nexus. So mm -hmm. really it's the design of the farm. It's where the permaculture comes in. Um, and I do utilize the forest, the, 
farm sits on 120 acres. So the vast majority of it is wooded. And we've got a five acre pond that we use for uh, irrigation. Formerly, we did use uh, solar panels to uh, pull up water from a creek. Uh, it was a um, DC system, so uh, it didn't require any batteries or anything. And we would pump into uh, tanks that were elevated and then could gravity feed from there. So that was a nice system, but that's no longer uh, in use. And we're pulling up water from a five acre lake that I mentioned um, mm -hmm. for irrigation on some of our fields, not all. Some we actually dry farm. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about, because um, you have pawpaws on the property, right? Yeah, I do have some pawpaws. Um, that's something we've actually looked at adding. Um, does yours, yours big enough that they bear every year? Or? I have one that I planted back in 1995, and it's the straight species. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I didn't realize that pawpaws were uh, food for people. I knew that there was a wildlife crop. And okay. so I was going along with the whole uh, let's plant for wildlife and, and uh, try to attract wildlife and so later i realized that that was good food for people and got on that pawpaw bandwagon and got a grant from slow food uh upstate here in the area to uh plant some of the um peterson pawpaws and mm -hmm. they they gave me some money to do that we planted about 10 or so and i uh I can tell you how to kill a pawpaw more than I can tell you maybe how to grow them. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned, we're, we're kind of farming hilltops, which are not really the native haunt of pawpaws. They like low riparian creek bottoms and such. Mm -hmm. um, and since then, I've learned where to site them more uh, properly. So I kind of look for low areas um, in these uplands. And we've got some of those that, that we put them into. I had to move them which, you know, they don't like to be moved. So I lost some of them in that, um, in that instance. And I've got about four or five left that are still um, growing, but albeit slowly. And they're not, like I said, they're not dead, but uh, they're not to uh, uh, bearing size yet or age. So I'm actually looking at trying to uh, get some more uh, uh, money from Slow Food to plant others now that I know how to plant them and where to put them and to uh, cultivate them in that manner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so what other types of bigger, uh, longer, like tree crops do you have? Um, I've got figs, uh, blueberries. We also are growing some pineapple guava. Um, we've got muscadines. Um, but I haven't really dove in deeply into the orchard planting for one reason in that it's a lot of the culture and care takes place in spring when we're uh, in full uh, throttle with the veg production. So it kind of would distract me from that. But I am interested in the Michael Phillips, uh, God bless, God rest his soul. He passed mm -hmm. away recently. Um, and his kind of a holistic uh, orchard care. And a lot of that kind of dovetails with practices that I could utilize on the veg crops as well. So it's something I'm getting into, but I, I would almost have to uh, clone myself to 
be able to do all that. Um, but it's, it's definitely a goal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Share a little bit about your decision to be certified organic. Yeah, that was in 2004. It was maybe a little premature because our income was not quite at the level to where we pass that threshold where you need to get inspected and certified by a, you know, third party. Um, we've been certified with Clemson since then and um, have gotten cost share every year. So that has really helped with the with the price. It's never really cost more than $150, $175 a year. So it's, it's definitely affordable. Um, I really just thought, you know, in 2004, it, the National Organic Program was really just getting started mm -hmm. and getting off the ground. Um, so we were a bit ahead of the curve there. And uh, it's just something that I've always believed in. When I worked at the natural food store, you know, it was, you could see the, the, the seal or the symbol. And so I felt like it was important to go ahead and get certified and not just talk about it or not use uh, euphemisms like, you know, um, spray free or, mm -hmm. or grown organically or whatever. It's also opened the doors for us in being part of organic trials. We participated with Tuskegee University uh, three, four years ago and doing uh, vegetable trials and the prerequisite that we was that be certified organic. So uh, that definitely helped with that. Um, Sure, there are some qualms I have with uh, some of the the prices of the organic seeds. You know, if, if you're wanting a variety and it's available organically, you have to buy it um, organically. And sometimes it can be a lot more expensive. A lot of times it's not, but but things like sweet potato slips, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, I would imagine asparagus crowns would probably be more expensive. But if they're not available, you do get a waiver on that if you show that you you know, made a good faith effort in trying to locate them um, organically. Mm -hmm. Now, do you grow your own sweet potato slips? Um, I don't. I am probably okay. going to next year. Um, but right now I just order them out of North Carolina mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh. Uh, per 1,000. Yeah. Yeah. Get a couple thousand at a time. Uh, what mm -hmm. would you say is the... Um, the, the the biggest crop that you guys have on the farm there? What would you say your, your most profitable would be? Well, we grow a lot of uh, squash. We seem to do that pretty well. And that runs the gamut from everything, you know, cucumbers, um, summer squash, winter squash. Um, we do grow a lot of kale, but we're a diversified farm. So we're doing a CSA which and market, which you know, requires a wide variety of crops. So it also uh, insulates us from, if we have a crop loss, it's not too bad um, to where we're, you know, reeling from that. Uh, yeah, it, a lot of sweet potatoes, uh, maybe I say a lot, a quarter acre, it seems like a lot to me. Mm -hmm. um, Greens, you know, root crops are a fair amount, carrots, beets, turnips, radishes, we grow a lot of those. In fall, we do the watermelon radishes and daikon. Um, spring, we tend to do more of the salad radishes and, of course, turnips, the hakurai turnips, which I'm sure a lot of farmers know about, are mm -hmm. very popular. And we try to grow a lot of successions of those. So it's, it's 
starting in February 1st and pretty much going um, year round from there uh, with, with the production. Mm-hmm. Talk about, cause you're, are you real, far, real organic as well? We are, we were uh, real organic certified last year. Okay. And talk about what is that, what, what is that program and a little bit about like what additional things you have to do? Yeah, it's, um, it, I believe it came out of um, the uh, National Organic Program meeting in 2017 or 18, I might get the year wrong, when they okayed hydroponic production as being certified organic. Mm. And that's where, when some of the, uh, where and when some of the uh, founding fathers of or- organic uh, production in, in the States, Elliot Coleman, et cetera, uh, I guess came up with the idea that, that we needed an add-on label to uh, distinguish ourselves from some of these big industrial organic firms. And that's where it got started. And we were paying attention and you know didn't really do anything the first couple of years. But then I think we uh, got contacted by them to see if we were interested, which we were. And so they came out last year and did a site inspection. Of course, we had to be certified organic to, to just get our foot, feet in the door. And mm-hmm. so we went from there and it really was not any extra paperwork or uh, credentials or anything that we had to show. Um, they just wanted to, you know, we did fill out a questionnaire. It wasn't, I won't say it wasn't anything, but it wasn't yeah. near as, near as uh, thorough as an organic inspection. Mm-hmm. Talk about the, um, the, the team you have. Sure. Well, we are a wolf farm. If you're familiar with Wolf USA, Worldwide mm-hmm. Opportunities on Organic Farms. We've been doing that since 2011, um, which in a way kind of saved the farm. I was um, at wit's end about the labor aspect. We would hire some folks. Um, they were kind of transient workers. They weren't here all the time. Uh, I think I had run the course of being a- able to ask my f- family and friends to volunteer and help out. So my father unfortunately passed away in 2010. And then the next year, my stepmother, who lives next door to me, I broached the idea about uh, joining Wolf with her. She seemed interested and um, had the house. Um, 2,800 square foot house in which to, uh, to house them. So uh, that's when we started and it took a few years to kind of get the ball rolling. But uh, by 2014, we were hosting woofers as we called them. Um, starting in January, we'd get a lot of folks from the Midwest, Northeast trying to get out of that cold winter mm-hmm. and we'd start up early and do uh, farm maintenance and such. And start seeds, like I said, in early February, and we were off and running. We try to host them pretty much year round. Um, And so that's been the backbone of our labor since then. I, for a few years, did hire apprentices and interns and give them a stipend. And of course, they would have to work more. um, And they were sometimes a little more, you know, well, hopefully they were a little more involved than, than the average woofer. Um, but this year, for instance, I have three folks that I, uh, um, have through Woof, um, 
two of them are local, which is kind of unusual. And all three are um, basically apprenticing for a year, which is a bit atypical for woofers. Um, usually they're here for a couple of months or you know sometimes longer, but a year is, is definitely out, um, not the norm. So that is basically like an apprenticeship um, in my eyes to be here for a year. So mm -hmm. that's, that's ideal for us. That, that really works. Um, one of them I ended up hiring and he, um, it's my assistant manager. So he kind of, in my absence and, and uh, otherwise just kind of manages the rest of them. And right now we've got a crew of five, not including me. And uh, it really works out well. Um, they work about 30 hours a week. Um, Monday through Friday, plus uh, going to the farmer's market on Saturdays. So um, it's by no means, you know, 40 hours or anything like that. It's more like 34, 35 when you count in the farmer's market. And uh, they stay next door, as I mentioned, at my stepmother's house. Um, they've got the whole downstairs, three uh, bedrooms, plus a common area, nice outdoor patio. They're really uh, comfortable. Uh, my stepmother takes uh, it seriously and providing good hospitality and good food for them. She cooks a home-cooked meal uh, in the evenings. Uh, breakfast is usually oatmeal, cereals, fruit, um, eggs, and, and then lunch we're on our own. So the, you know, the hospitality aspect is really um, paramount and you know, to, to making them feel comfortable and making them feel welcome. And then the work on the farm, I think is, is, you know, just adds to it to where we've gotten great reviews pretty much across the board for these um, 11 years we've been doing it. And that really helps a lot to, to recruit and bring in uh, the help we need to run the farm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Share a little bit about um, working with woofers, because I'm assuming, um, you're training new people. And so that means that you have to be pretty much on top of it. People that don't have a background in agricultural talk about how you make that work. Yeah. Um, it's really important to have um, somebody that's been here for a while. Like my assistant manager last year, I had a, a assistant manager that had experience farming um, and he was a quick study and learned my systems pretty, pretty fast. Um, so it really helps to be organized. Uh, we've got some standard operating procedures. Um, the farm is pretty contained. Most of our production is pretty close to where our our uh, our shed is and our and our pack shed and our coolers and everything. So um, it's not like it's remote to where they're out of sight, out of mind. Um, yeah, there's definitely a learning curve, mm. um, and that that goes with the territory. I mean, we're 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 teaching them at the same time um, as we're, you know, trying to maintain production, and that's trying to juggle those two can be challenging sometimes, and the skill level can be, uh, you know, across the board. It, it can run the gamut. So um, we will tend to put the ones with less experience on less important tasks or things that don't require so much detail. Um, but usually they have some background in, in uh, 
and at least having a garden or sustainability or you know something that that will give them some some uh skills or some um you know some some good um background to mm-hmm. uh to draw upon to do the work needed but it's yeah it's definitely a uh um you know it, it can be a challenging at times but um this year for the most part they've really been uh um on the ball and really skilled and learned quickly and now they've been on the farm since february so they've they've come down um to where they're you know it's 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 uh, second nature to them. Mm-hmm. Now, have you had any specific tips for making sure you convey the right information? Like have you over the years learned that they need to be reinforced about specific tasks or topics while you're training? Yeah. Um, it's kind of redundancy is important. Um, stating things, uh, we also like, like, you know, state restating things and, and uh, just kind of driving that home, certain things. Um, we'll tend to work with them until they, uh, you know, till we feel that they're a little bit more uh, comfortable with what they're doing. Um, this, the uh, SOPs we have help um, having things labeled, you know, this is where the, the lean farming techniques could probably really help taking pictures of things, um, having everything labeled as, as well as possible. Um, and yeah, just clear communication really is what it comes down to. Um, and letting them know that it's okay to ask a lot of questions if they need to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you use like radios to communicate on the farm or cell phones? We use cell phones. We text a lot, but, uh, no, not radios. That's, that is a thought though. But, um, Usually we're, uh, again, not too far away. We do have one field that's a little remote, maybe a quarter mile away, which really is not that far. Um, so we don't really need to, um, you know, to, to discuss things too detailed. But with my assistant manager, yeah, we, we do a lot of texting and phone calls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Do you know that you are already standing on the key to bigger yields and better profits? To help maximize your yield and profit potential, look beyond the standard fertility options. Choose Ultra by AgriGrow. Ultra is an Omri-listed soil prebiotic technology designed to develop the native microorganisms in your soil. AgriGrow's prebiotic technologies are engineered with the users in mind. Ultra is easy to use and has great tank mixing abilities that won't clog or mess up sprayers or injectors. It also does not require refrigeration like many other probiotic formulas available on the market. In December of 2020, I was introduced to AgriGrow. At first, I was a skeptic, but I was able to check out their production facility and meet the owners and staff. This company is great. Over the last year and a half, I've run several different trials using their products and I'm really impressed with the results that I see. I've seen my soil texture improve during cultivation. I've seen decade-old heirloom corn germinate for the first time. My $6 cost of Ultra boosted my strawberry fields dramatically. AgriGrow is offering a 10% discount to all thriving farmer listeners. Simply use the coupon code THRIVE when you check out at smallfarm.solutions. Again, that is T-H-R-I-V-E for a 10% off discount on your first order. Talk about your um, your Airbnb on the farm. Yeah, it's um, a little 
tiny house about a, it's a little cabin, 400 square feet, maybe. Um, that is my stepmother's uh, um, initiative. And she takes care of that. Um, we, as I mentioned, have a lake. And so that is part of it, um, the ability to fish there. But as far as the cross marketing and the agritourism aspect that it that it could uh, be a part of, uh, we're really on the tip of the iceberg there. And, and that's some of the work I'll be doing soon is trying to uh, zero in on that and flesh it out as much as possible um, to include farm tours, probably monthly, um, unless it's a special request and, you know, um, dovetailing that with um, doing bird walks, plant walks. Uh, we'd like to do some um, classes on farm. Uh, the permaculture aspect is pretty appealing to a lot of people. Uh, increasingly so, it seems like permaculture is starting to get more attention. Um, so all those kind of run together um, and I think could, could be attributes and, and, and uh, kind of add-ons to the Airbnb. We're also looking at getting into hip camp because um, the septic system that this, air, that this Airbnb cabin is on has got capacity for, for another uh, hookup. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe doing possibly another Airbnb cabin plus hip camp. Um, and then probably doing on-farm events, possibly like they do in the Midwest with the, uh, you know, the farm pizza. We've mm -hmm. got a little amphitheater, kind of a natural uh, amphitheater that's kind of hemmed in by the, the key line, which forms the basis of the farm core. Um, and, and so maybe even getting into music, that, uh, that has appeal and I think could be a, uh, a good attraction. We're about 30 miles from Greenville. So we're definitely um, in a rural area, but not too far out. And then there's a couple other smaller cities that are 30 miles away or less. So, um, you know, we're within striking distance of a pretty big population. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, talk to, uh, some people might not know what Hip Camp is. Share a little bit about what that, the, the concept. Yeah, it's um, where, I guess it's kind of like Airbnb, but camping. Um, mm -hmm. So folks can, uh, it's a register, um, you know, like a, a, a site, a website that you can uh, join. I think like Wolf, you probably have to pay a, uh, uh, a membership. Um, I assume the hosts have to pay a membership as well, just like uh, Wolf and I assume like Airbnb as well. And uh, it can work. Um, you know, be Spartan accommodations, I guess, like, you know, maybe just a place to camp and some water and maybe a fire ring to, you know, constructed platforms with, uh, you know, a portage on or, or who knows. It, it, it seems like it's uh, customizable and not uh, one size fits all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, with your Airbnb, is that something where you guys do the cleaning or is that you bring someone in? How much and how much work is there in, re in regards to that part of your, your, your farm? Yeah, it's in-house uh, cleaning. She takes care of all that um, and really uh, is a great hostess in that regard as well, not only to the woofers, but to the Airbnb 
uh, uh, clients and she's got very views there. Um, just like we do on Wolf mm-hmm. and, uh, again, realizing the potential of that, uh, of people staying there, they could add, add on farm tours. They could add on, um, you know, farm fresh produce that they want to, if they want to purchase any that we have available, uh, even two eggs, we've got 20 plus, uh, chickens that are free range and, you know, being able to pick your fresh eggs or at least having a dozen delivered to your door, uh, you know, or just again, add-ons and, uh, amenities that, that I think could add to the overall experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, let's talk about your marketing. Um, I believe you sell at farmer's markets. Yes, uh, we do sell at one farmer's market, um, the TD Saturday market in downtown Greenville on Main Street. It's the premier market in the upstate. Um, We did formerly do some weekday markets, but found them not to be, uh, unfortunately, worth our time. Uh, We had a slow food earth market was the first in the uh, states and lasted for about eight, nine years, but slowly dwindled to where we just couldn't maintain it anymore and had to uh, disband that, unfortunately. Um, we sometimes do a winter market in the off season um, in Greenville. But other than that, that, that uh, market we do made October, we sell to farm to table restaurants in the Greenville area. And then we also have a CSA that we've been doing for over 10 years. Okay. What would you say the, the goals of the farm are for the next five years? Do you have any big um, projects or plans coming up? Well, the uh, agritourism potential I mentioned is definitely a uh, part of that. Um, let's see. Um adding some infrastructure i need to do a a more involved and and better pack house Uh, i'd like to do that with utilizing on-farm resources like the timber um, and possibly doing a workshop with uh with the building of that as part of it um again the orchard production is something the fruits uh fruits and nuts is something i'm very much into Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd like to do more of that. We have some some arable acreage that is not really suitable for uh, row crops. The soil mm-hmm. is too poor or it's sloping. Um, so that has potential there. Animal husbandry is another one that I think, you know, I believe a complete farm should have an animal component on it. Um, I Yeah, a vegan farm just seems... Um, like an oxymoron to me. Um, and so I'd like to, you know, to add there maybe um, more chickens, uh, possibly pigs. We've got some wooded acreage. I have raised some pigs a couple of years um, in some wooded areas that we have um, to uh, try to get them to eat some of the acorns. We've got post oak. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> prevalent in our uh, in our uplands here and I read in a uh, hunting journal um, that post oak acorns have 50% more fat in their acorns than other oak species so that got my uh, 
got me to thinking that they have potential for like the um, like they do with the Iberico ham in the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, and Portugal, where they feed the feed them in the understory of the chestnut and and cork oak um, uh, forests, and so that seemed like it had potential, and I'd like to revisit that. But it in the two years I raised them, it was it was uh, it was hard to keep them uh, um, contained sometimes, but also. Uh, I could never get the timing right with the acorns, and so I never got to realize that potential. But a lot of white oaks here, and they love eating white oak acorns. Um, a lot of times they go to waste because they're up close to the house where deer aren't going to go mm -hmm. after them and eat them. So pigs really have an appeal to me um, as far as raising them. So th those are definitely some things I'd like to uh, pursue and there are definitely others, um, but uh, I don't want to bite off more than I can chew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, talk a little bit about the process of restoring the post oak savanna. Sure. Well, uh, as I mentioned, we're in some uplands here. Um, we're basically headwaters. We've got a, a creek that we dammed, and it's a very small creek. It's, it basically forms as a seepage spring um, from our property. and uh, you could literally jump across it. It's it's a ribbon of water going across the forest floor, so it wouldn't really be much of a fire break. And and taking that in mind with uh, some of what I'd read about natural history, I've been a member of the Native Plant Society for a number of years, and they uh, got me to realize that despite the myth of the squirrel that could go from the Atlantic to the Mississippi without touching the ground, the the southeast was a lot more open and had grasslands and meadows and such uh, more than we realized. Mm. And only after uh, Native Americans were displaced did these management regimes like fire fall out of practice and, and then the forest grew up thicker than it, than it would otherwise. Now granted, north facing slopes and, and, uh, and in bottomlands and riparian zones probably would not have burned, but on these uplands like we have, they would have. And indicator species like post oaks and southern red oaks, I kind of had a eureka moment one day and said, these are indicators of, of, pre, of fire. Basically they're thick bark tree oaks that are tolerant of fire, tolerant of drought and poor soil. And, and so I, in, in uh, 2009, we had a um, sustainable timber sale on the farm where we did a bit of thinning on some of our uh, hardwood stands. And as part of that, the logger that we hired who specialized in hardwood thinning, uh, I, he, I was basically able to customize the forest. And so any trees that I wanted to retain, I just flagged and he went around them and left them alone. So I basically went through uh, for several months and, and really took a deep dive and, and kind of cruised the forest and, and saw which trees I wanted to keep and which ones I didn't. Um, a limited area uh, here by our farm core and where our houses are. And also did some thinning with my trusty weed wrench, which is a woody plant extractor. Mm -hmm. And um, thin the trees up and got it to where it kind of looks to use a oft uh, quoted term like a 
park, basically uh, kind of parkland and very open with these mature uh, oak trees. Uh, they're about 50 years old, so they're pretty sizable now at this point. And then I put goats on the uh, part of the area and fenced it in because once you disturb a forest or land, you get this instant succession of, um, you know, of, of, uh, of trees and brush and so forth. So mm -hmm. put the goats on it. These are large goats. Um, they're over six feet when they're standing on their hind legs and pulling oh, wow. down branches. The browse line is quite high and they did a phenomenal job. Um, I've had goats on the land. Um, well, it was about a year after we did the uh, logging job. And uh, up until now, I've still got goats on the two of them. And they actually eat the cambium layer of sweet gums and red maples, which are trees that encroach on these uplands in the yeah. absence of fire. So they do a great job. They don't bother the oaks, which is our kind of our, uh, our target species to try to promote and restore. So ultimately next year I'll put fire um, on the land. I'm working um, with uh, an equip grant to, uh, to get some money to do some controlled burning. Interesting. Um, and it appears that you also do, is it mushrooms? Yes, um, we do grow shiitakes on white oak logs that I cull from the, the forest out here. And these are trees that are otherwise suppressed and don't really have a future. So uh, I cut those in the dormant season and then we inoculate them. It's, we use sawdust spawn. So it's, we've got it down to where it's really kind of assembly line production and four or five people can knock out a bunch of logs in no time. And so we probably do about a hundred logs a year. I'll, I'll try to ramp that up um, this year and maybe do some more. And um, in addition to that, I do have my, uh, foraging uh, mushroom license. So I'm able to go and forage mushrooms on the land and elsewhere and legally sell them uh, to restaurants. Uh, I've gotten my uh, five-year license uh, a couple of years ago. So wait a minute, stop right there. So the Carolina, uh, South Carolina makes you get a license to do mushrooms? Yeah, correct. Uh, not to grow them, but to forage them, to, uh, wow. you know, to collect them from the wild. And I think most states do as well. My, my uh, certificate, I think, covers North Carolina, Georgia, and maybe even like Pennsylvania, which is, you know, obviously not close by. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, I think it's mandatory. So do you um, have to take a test or how do they... Yeah, it's a two day uh, it's a two day class uh, which culminates in a in a test, both a written test and a like a visual test. Mm -hmm. um, the I'll give a plug to Mushroom Mountain, um, my friend yes. uh, Trad and Olga Cotter. They mm -hmm. uh, um, have Mushroom Mountain not far up the road from here, and so that's where I was able to do the class, and um, mm -hmm. they actually travel around and do classes on, uh, you know, in other States. Um, oh, yeah. so to have them in our backyard was, was really nice. And actually last week I went on a, um, mushroom foray with our local mushroom group, South Carolina upstate mycology society that was led by Olga of mushroom mountain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's super lucky. They're so close to them. Chad's a really cool guy. Mm -hmm. Um, share a little bit about, um, 
kind of like uh, your advice to the new farmers? Like, what would you re recommend, you know, farmers start with? Uh, let's see. Um, advice to, to beginning farmers. I would say, you know, to start today, um, to, to not uh, be overwhelmed by everything, to just start small. Um, but start today and, um, you know, make small mistakes. Don't get too big too fast because that's the quickest way to burn out. Mm. Um, keep good records. Um, do crop plans. Maybe take some business courses. Um, all those many hats that farmers wear, the more you have them, the, you know, the easier it'll be. Um, and just stick with it to try to persevere. It's not easy, but it's uh, work that's worth doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate uh, you coming on the podcast today and sharing your story, Chris. Um, what uh, would you say is the favorite tool that you have on the farm? Um, I've got a lot. Um, so it's not just one thing. I'd say tarps. Um, we use occultation tarps. They really um, expanded our weed game, um, mm -hmm. being able to address weeds. Stirrup hose are great mm -hmm. uh, because we do a fair amount of, of hand weeding. Smartphone, you know, it's, it's such a versatile tool. Absolutely. And then a weed wrench. If you've got some forested land, a weed wrench is a great uh tool to have to help you manage uh, forested and brushy areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, that is awesome. Again, thank you so much, Chris, for coming on. Appreciate your time and uh, look forward to continuing to watch you grow. Thank you for having me, Michael. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.